0: This is part seven. The church is at its best when. I do have to recap. First one, back in November, the church is at its best when we preach the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the church is at its best when we recognize Jesus as Lord and Christ, our anointer. Third, the church is at its best when we preach Jesus Christ as our healer. Fourth, The church is at its best when we are one in heart and mind. Fifth, the church is at its best when we work out our problems together and glorify God through it. Sixth, the church is at its best when we choose our leaders wisely. So seven, chapter six, let's see if you can sort this out for us. Chapter 6, beginning at verse 8, and I'm going to move around a little bit today. Now, Stephen, one of the guys we talked about from earlier in the chapter on two different occasions. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great, wondrous and, uh, great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as they spoke. So here's the thing. Stephen is out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are certain sects or segments of the Jewish faith, and it tells you where they came from there, that are taking him on. They're challenging him. And so they're having these theological debates and discussions. But you will see here, verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the spirit gave him as he spoke. So let me summarize it. They're really ticked off. They're trying to defend Judaism uh, against what they would call this cult cult. Uh, of of Christianity, these followers of the way, and they are unable to do so. They're unable to refute Stephen. In fact, what's actually going on is Stephen is refuting them. It's back and forth and back and forth, and they're all taking runs at him. But the bottom line is that that, uh, God has given him so much spirit wisdom here that uh, basically um, they've lost every discussion. So what do you do when you've lost the debate? Well, they'll tell you what you do. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Moses meaning the Mosaic law most likely. So they stirred up people and the elders and the teachers of the law. So it's not just their group now, it's not just their sex, but they've stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, which basically means this, they've got everybody in a frenzy now. They, there's, there's a hornet's nest there and they've whacked it. And I tell you, there's all kinds of buzzing going on. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the religious uh, council. It's the leaders of those days. They make all the religious decisions regarding Israel. And they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple, and against the law, the Mosaic law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting there in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. They're giving him the stink eye, right? And they're just glaring at him. And Luke comments at the end, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let me take you to the end of this. They kill him. They don't all live happily ever after. They stone him and he dies. But let's get to when the church is at its best. How does this help us to understand when the church is at its best? In order to appreciate what this means for us as a church, you have to think a little bit about some of the things that they were concerned about. So let me just give you a little bit more detail, and that will become just a little bit more clear for you. So Acts chapter 7 now, and we're going to move almost to the very end of the book. Acts chapter 7, and um, let me begin in and around, I guess you could say, uh, verse 42. Acts 7, verse 42. Luke is the writer. Stephen is speaking. This is just before they stone him. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. This would be Amos. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel. You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan. The idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant of the law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them, and it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? And then just back up just a little bit more and go just to Acts chapter 7. And one other thing that I want to bring to you as it deals with another right that they had dealt with. Uh, Acts chapter 7 verse 4. Speaking of Abraham, So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to the land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So there's a few things here that are focused on that I want to tie together for you so that you'll understand when the church is at its best. When Stephen is speaking to these guys, uh, the leaders at the Sanhedrin, of the religious council, he, of course, is expected to defend his faith. He's expected to defend the followers of the way and, of course, speak eloquently about Jesus of Nazareth. But he understands his audience. He knows who's uh, sitting in front of him, so to speak, and he knows that they're Jews and they're steeped in Judea. Judaism. These are the religious elite. And so rather than just make a quick defense about Jesus and justification by faith and all of that stuff, he doesn't do that. He starts first of all with Abram. And he says that God took Abram out of the land and promised him, children promised him an inheritance, all of those neat kinds of things. And those of you that have read way back in Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and so on, you will know the details. But the big point that he's making here with Abram is that he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Now, that's a weird word for us to to kind of say in church, and it's a a rite that's difficult sometimes for us to understand, but it's significant that. Abram and God made this agreement, this blood covenant of circumcision where there's the mark in the flesh, the removal of flesh, and and God says that that's going to be the sign on the males that that you have entered into my covenant, that we are covenantly linked now. So Abram starts that, and that follows all the way through to to Isaac, to Jacob, and to all of the the tribes of Israel. The, The sign of circumcision is absolutely significant to anyone who wants to call themselves a Jew. Of course, the males. Primary. The second thing that Israel gets is the Mosaic Law. And we are probably more familiar with that. The Ten Commandments and everything else that is linked to that. Including the sacrificial system. And that's why I read that to you a little bit from Amos. So there's circumcision. There's the Mosaic Law. There's the sacrificial system. And then finally, the fourth pillar is the temple. And he speaks a little bit about that. And I read that to you. Now again, for you to get the whole gist of this, you've got to go and read the end of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, and unfortunately, we just don't have time to read verse after verse after verse. But those are the four elements that Stephen is addressing to his Jewish audience, these members of the Sanhedrin. There's the covenant of circumcision, there's the Mosaic law, attached to that is the sacrificial system, and of course, finally, the temple. And Stephen addresses all of those issues because those are the burning questions amongst the Jews at that time. Is Jesus and is the preaching of the gospel, these followers of the way, is it doing away with everything? And in fact, they use some of Stephen's words... Maybe paraphrase some of Jesus' words, even paraphrased about things like the doing away of the temple. You know, not one stone will be left upon another. And of course, Jesus did talk about the temple, but especially was talking about the fact that one day the temple would be us, right? Those that are born again by the Spirit of God, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he's covering a lot of territory here because he's basically saying this. I'm teaching that if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the one that was risen from the dead, even though he's the crucified one, even though he's the one that you said was a criminal, but I'm preaching him as Lord and Savior, the Messiah. And if you believe in Jesus, then you can be saved. What you folks are saying is is that you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the Mosaic law, keep the sacrificial system, And make sure you worship at the temple. Those are the four key ingredients by which we can determine whether or not you're a God follower. And so Stephen is running right up against that and saying none of that stuff is necessary because all of it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. None of it is necessary. Now again... I don't know if you and I can really appreciate the offense that this causes to people who have been believing something else. And so I'd like for you just to think about this. When you've been living your whole life and your ancestors For hundreds and hundreds of years have been living their whole lives and basing their whole belief system around circumcision, the Mosaic law, the sacrificial system, and the temple. When that's your religious world, when that's your center of the universe when that's the thing you get up in the morning and live for, when that's the thing that you're teaching to your kids and your grandkids, when that's what kind of defines you, and this is the thing here more than anything else, if that's what defines you as a people and as a person, and then some big mouth comes along and says, everything that you've been believing and following for the last you know thousand years, more or less, says that that's not the truth anymore, that's not what you need to believe in anymore, there's a whole nother way that all of that simply pointed to Jesus, and now that Jesus is here, the rest of that kind of crumbles to the ground, more or less. That blows your world up. That absolutely blows your world up. Because it wasn't just something that was personal. We we talk about that all the time. Well, you know, I've got this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, that's good, and that's great. But to the Jew, those four things defined them. So let's say you've got four things that define you. Marital status, I don't know, education, your job, I don't know, your family name, where you live, I don't know, whatever it is that you feel defines you. Let's say those four things that define you, that you've built your life around, are all of a sudden stripped away. They are found to be untrustworthy, or they're found to be uh, illegitimate, or they've been found to be a lie. And all of a sudden, everything that you built your life around has been stripped away. How would that make you feel? Well, you would get the same reaction as, as these guys are giving Stephen. They're mad. So the first thing they do is, is, is they try the nice thing first. Well, let's just debate it. Let's just debate it. You, you talk to me about Jesus and all the scriptures that you know tell me about Jesus and Jesus coming and dying. And I'll talk to you about circumcision, the law, uh, the sacrifices, and the temple. And I'll tell you why all that's important. So they're going back and forth, back and forth. And we don't have, again, we don't have a lot of the details here. But they're going back and forth. And as I read earlier from the latter part of chapter 6, what happens is, is they all take a run at him. And so it's tag team. Jerome tries, it doesn't work. He says, Carol, you try. Carol tries, it doesn't work. Adam, you try. Adam tries, it doesn't work. He taps up, and now Jeff's taking run of me, and that's not working. So these guys get together, and like, they're just feuding mad now. Like, they're fit to be tied. And so because the Spirit has given Stephen so much wisdom, and they can't out-argue him, because they can't master the Scriptures the way Stephen does, they have to start making up lies. It's amazing, those that are apparently so devout to the Old Testament and are told not to bear false witness against one another, the first thing they do is they go get some false witnesses. And then eventually they, they get everybody riled up enough that they get Stephen before the Sanhedrin and they're thinking to himself, well, the Romans have the political power, but we still have the religious power, so we'll make sure that the Sanhedrin deals with him, whatever that is. Slap on the wrist, a little bit of time in jail, or as we know, the end of the story is they actually have him killed. He becomes the first, first uh, church martyr. So they've... They've run down the gamut. None of them can out-argue him. And Stephen's the guy. He's at the top of this. But what I want to know is, is like, well, what's going on here? And the issue comes down to this. The issue is is that these guys are convinced that it's the externals that matter. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. Look what they say about Stephen. Chapter 6, verse 13. This fellow never quits speaking against this place, meaning the temple, and against the law. Was Stephen really doing that? Was he really speaking against the law? Or, and was he really speaking against the temple? Because you need to understand this. Israel had the right of circumcision. God demanded that from Abram and his descendants. That was locked in. It wasn't a bad thing. God sent Moses with the Mosaic Law, as we call it. That wasn't a bad thing that was locked in. Sacrifices had been offered on and off through you know, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years in that part of the world, but now it gets locked in under the Mosaic law, the when and the where and the how. And of course, they move from the tabernacle to the, to the temple that David designed but Solomon built, and that becomes a significant place. God said that I want you to build a temple, a place for my name. And it's to be in Jerusalem. It's to be Mount Zion. That's all locked in. So you need to know that when all of that stuff was done, God required all of it. It wasn't a bad thing. However, its time had come. And in Jesus Christ now, all of what those things mean, relationship with God, proper worship, Now we go from the externals to the moving of the Spirit, to the sacrifices. Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice. And rather than being the temple where you go to a place, as I said earlier, we now become the naos of God, the temple of God. So all of that old covenant stuff and stuff that even predated circumcision, which predates the covenant, all of that was good and well, and it was locked in for a time. But now it all gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Stephen isn't preaching against it. He is just saying now there's a new covenant in the blood of the Lamb. And all of that stuff was pointing to this. And so, folks, it's not like I'm against you. I'm not against what God did. But it, it was all pointing to a better place, to a better person. And that's not now found in Jesus Christ. So he's just trying to help them understand, to clarify, all of that was pointing to Jesus. It could all be now found in Jesus. But, of course, all they hear is You know what? He's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against the Mosaic law. So, the four things that Stephen addresses here. Circumcision, the Mosaic law, the sacrifices, and the temple. These are everything, everything in those days to those who are Jews. Remember, Solomon had built the first temple. And then it was, you know, laid to waste by the Babylonians. They rebuild it under the time of Ezra. But of course, it was never what it could have been or should have been. And then Herod builds them a new one. And they've got this brand spanking shiny new temple. They feel like things are kind of getting back to where they ought to be now. And now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the preaching that comes in his name, it seems that somebody's trying to tear it all down again. It seems like somebody's trying to burn it all down to the ground again. The temple, the Mosaic law, sacrifices, and circumcision were foundational for most things Jewish. For Stephen to be preaching that the temple as the centerpiece of worship doesn't matter and that the law of Moses couldn't save you was blasphemous to the leadership of the Jewish religion in those days. Stephen bottom lines all of this and says that circumcision is good if it's of the heart, but those circumcised elsewhere often didn't live like the people of God. And even if the Mosaic law and its sacrifices could save you, and of course it couldn't, he says to them, you never kept it or offered them properly. And God's too big to live in a temple. In other words, just because you feel this is the temple of God, the center of the universe, it doesn't mean God actually lives here or that you have a corner on God. Because as we're told, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And the biggest part of their failure was to recognize that Moses told them that God would send them a prophet like him, meaning Jesus and the people of Israel did not receive, or were not, or unwilling to receive, the words of Moses, according to Acts chapter seven, verses thirty-seven to thirty-eight. Now, again, you've, you're going to have to go all the way back into Acts seven and read the entire chapter to get all of the details there, all of the nuances there. But it's all there. He's basically saying this: Look, even if those four th- four things could save you, and by the way, they can't, you don't do any of them, anyways. So I don't know what you're talking about. Circumcision, in the old, before the, the Mosaic law, was of the flesh and it was a physical sign. But now there's to be a circumcision of the heart. Meaning that something has happened inside. It's not just an external thing. The Mosaic law had all kinds of great laws and all of that and demanded and told us what God wanted. But the problem was with our flesh that we never had the ability to do it the way God wanted us to do. That's why faith was always a necessary part of that. The sacrifices were great, but if you read the passage in Amos that Stephen quotes, he says to them, well, you offered sacrifices, but most of the time where you were in the wilderness, you offered them the false gods. And that's why he mentions a couple, couple of things, a couple of gods that he, uh, that he cites there, Moloch and, and Rephim, because they were more often worshiping false gods than God himself. And the temple, you always look at the temple as God's protection. When Jeremiah preached to you in his letters that God was going to destroy Israel and destroy the temple, you said the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It can't be destroyed because God's put his temple here, his name's here. And he said, what happened? Well, you were swept away into captivity. And now you're saying again, the temple of the Lord, that this is where God puts his name. And and I'm reminding you, Stephen says that God doesn't live in temples because he's too big for that. So just because you built a place for his name doesn't mean that that makes something sacred or better or that there's something in it that can save you. And so Stephen addresses all of the major tenets of their faith, addresses all of their external stuff, and he says this to them. He says, there's a tremendous amount of arrogance that you would trust in these external things to save yourself. Stephen reminds us that if we feel we couldn't do what Israel did, faith becomes form, externals more important than internals, and heritage trumps heart. God does not build his life in his followers through externals. So there's the arrogance factor. There's now the pride factor where they are saying to everybody, Look at how I practice my religion. I'm a good Jew. If I'm a male, I'm circumcised. I follow the Mosaic law. I offer the sacrifices religiously. And I'm always in the temple of the Lord. So Stephen calls them out in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. You can't be one of us until you live like us and believe like us. Circumcision, law, sacrifices, and temple worship. Not to say that that right living is important, but Stephen is reminding them here that even they couldn't live like that. They said, live like us, and Stephen says, well, even you didn't live like that. So why would we try to go down a road that you yourself couldn't travel? They had the externals, but they didn't have the internals. We all understand, even in our day, that lifestyle matters as a sign of growth and discipleship, but what I practice doesn't save me. And this is when the church is at its best, folks, when we understand this, that what I practice doesn't save me. It's not just Israel, but, but even the church Even the church has fallen into the temptation of suggesting to people that go there or to even others on the outside that to be like us, you have to live like us. You have to practice faith like us. So in Israel, in ancient Israel, again, it was circumcision. It was the Mosaic law. It was the sacrifices. And it was worshiping at the temple. The church over the the millennia has substituted some of those things. For some, it's if you're baptized here. And if you're baptized here, the way we baptize you here. For others, it's been something happens, something, there's something transformational in communion, that there's something that saves you while you take the, the elements. So do that. For others, you're not really saved unless you believe like us and and practice like we do here, the tenets of whatever our faith may be. And for many places, it's simply this. It's not that we're telling you not to believe in Jesus, but as I mentioned a little bit last week, it's Jesus plus something. Even as Even as the church was moving forward during these days and there were people being converted to to Christ, there was still an element of, of the Jewish side of the church that said, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but if you're a guy, you still have to be circumcised. You still have to become a Jew before you can be saved. And so even as they were beginning to understand that maybe it wasn't necessary for Gentile Christians to practice everything, there was still within them this like, well, but you still basically got to become a Jew before you can get saved. And so that's the battle in in the formative years of the church going as Stephen is preaching against the externals of Jewish religion that can't save you anyways. To in the church where there's still a faction of the church that's saying, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but first you got to become a Jew because you can't really believe in Jesus until you become a Jew. And finally, all of that gets flushed out in Acts chapter 15. And we'll eventually get to some of that storytelling in in the weeks to come. But folks, here's the thing. The church is at its best when we understand that salvation doesn't come through the things we do. There's always a pressure in the church where... People like me preach, you know, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then somebody says, well, that sounds kind of easy. What do you mean believe? And then we understand in the New Testament the way belief is used. It's not just like some kind of like mental assent or casual belief, but it's to really trust in Jesus. Bible goes on to say that those that trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. So there's this trusting in Jesus for your salvation. And we all say, amen. But occasionally in the church, what what drifts into the church, what leaks into the church is, but in order to stay saved, Jerome, there are things that you must do. And again, depending on the church, it differs. what what comes back, what what happens to us then is, is salvation is by grace through faith and then kept by works. And you know, those of you that are a little bit older, and you know what I mean by that because there was back in the day that you could trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but if you as a Christian were caught out doing something during the week or on a Sunday that wasn't deemed holy, you'd hear about it. Sometimes your pastors would even call you out on Sunday. I can't believe stuff like that happened, but stuff like that happened. I can't imagine doing that. And you'd get called out. And some of it was just crazy stuff. My friend Rhoda, God bless her, she's gone to be with Jesus, but she, she got saved back, you know, when the church was six days old, she got saved back in the 30s. And she remembers being castigated by a woman who that was walking, hopefully not less than a Sabbath day, walk by her house that Sunday. And Rhoda was out in between services, Pentecostal church in between services at Sault Ste. Marie, playing with one of her dolls. One of the ladies was walking by her, her, her yard, saw her over the fence playing with the doll. And then Rhoda, being, I don't know, six, seven years old, was just torn apart, shredded by this lady that said good Pentecostal girls didn't play with dolls on Sunday afternoon." Now, if you're new to the faith, that's just, but even if you're not, right? And here's the thing. When Rhoda was telling me that story, she was in her 70s. Like, that hung on. The effect of that, and she loved Jesus, and some of you know Rhoda Assen. But that stuff, that stuff hung on. Um, you remember, if you ever went to a movie theater, don't worry, Ken, we know you haven't. But you were told don't go to a movie theater because if the rapture happened that day, unlikely you'd go. Don't go to billiard halls and pool rooms, because again, bad places. I mean, I I, I could list a hundred thousand things, but it was it it wasn't always just a holiness thing. It was it was like if you did any of those things, you probably weren't saved in the first place. And so, all I want you to know as pastor is that when you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've invited Him into your life, you are born again by the Spirit of God. You are justified by grace through faith. It's not Jesus plus something else. Now, hear me. Holy living is important. Hear me. There are probably some of us in this room practicing things that we ought not to be practicing. And we're following back on on Paul's everything is you know, everything is, is permissible but not all things are beneficial. Everything is permissible but not all things are constructive. So I don't want you to hear that I'm not for holiness and We all understand that probably in every one of our lives we could do some cleaning up, but it's not a matter of whether or not you're saved. It's a matter of whether or not you're walking in obedience to the Lord and to his word. But in this church, we preach Jesus plus nothing. As it comes to salvation, Pastor Adam just gave announcements about discipleship. Nobody believes stronger in solid discipleship than I am than I do and with all of the things that have been going on in in the church in in recent years in around our region and I guess probably around the world I tell you we could all do with some more discipleship because there's too many of us wandering away from what the word of God says these days and some of it is so mind-boggling that I can't even believe people chase some of that stuff it just it breaks my heart and explodes my head but it's happening So discipleship is critical, believing right and living right. But when it comes to salvation, it's Jesus plus nothing. And for the Jews, it was like, you believe in God, but you better be circumcised. You believe in God, but you better make sure you follow the Mosaic law, even though they couldn't. You believe in God, you better make sure you do all the sacrifices, even though at some times you were offering sacrifices to foreign gods and sometimes to Yahweh. You believe in God and you better focus in the temple. And yet for the longest time, the temple didn't even exist. The whole time they were in Babylon, there was no temple. And there was no temple Before Solomon's time. And for a significant period of time after the rebuild, there was no temple. I mean, they must have understood that it wasn't all about the temple because it didn't exist for half the time. But they were always reaching to externals. And here's the thing about externals, and I realize our time is up, but here's the thing. It's not just the externals that the church chooses. It's the externals of this, and this brings us judgment. Betty's got her set of externals. So you believe in Jesus plus the things that Betty believes. And so let's say Betty doesn't believe in drinking wine. But if you go to Jerome's house, you might go over there Friday night, and he has a glass of wine. But he loves Jesus. And Betty says, well, I know he thinks he loves Jesus, But he's having a glass of wine. So obviously he doesn't, right? How many times do you go to church? Well, you know, if you really went, you know, you would be there Sunday and you would be there Wednesday as well. And if there's a Monday night prayer meeting and those kinds of things. So if Adam's not doing all of that, he may think he loves Jesus. But Sandy, who does all of that, says, well, Adam, you may think you love Jesus, but we all know you don't. And what happens is it's no longer the scriptures that define how a person is saved, but it becomes how we personally define the scriptures and live them out. And then what happens is, is I become the judge over your lifestyle. And if you're not doing it the way I'm doing it, then you're not doing it right. And I'm looking straight at you, Ian. And if Ian isn't doing it right in my eyes, then he's probably not saved, and then I've judged him. Or if Ian thinks that I'm not doing it right, then he's looking me square in the eyes and saying, well, you're not saved. And it becomes, this, it becomes this, you know, well, who's doing it right? Well, we all know who's doing it right. The ones judging others are the ones doing it right. That's why we feel we can judge, because we know we're doing it right. again, I think discipleship and holiness and all of those things are very, very important. However, we have to understand that once we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it is not those things that define us whether or not we really are saved. So I call it legalistic salvation. You are only saved as long as you follow the rules. And you're sitting back there and saying, whose rules? And of course we think, well, it's the Bible's rules. But we know it's not. It's her rules, it's her rules, it's Ian's rules. And that just creates division, it creates confusion, and it, what it does is it eventually brings division to the church. So let me wrap it up, time is up. The church, it's at its best when it avoids the externals of religious justification. The church it's at its best when it avoids the externals of religious justification. The people that Stephen was confronting couldn't get it. Now there's four things you got to do, and if you're not doing those four things, you can't be saved. Stephen, if you just do the four things, and Stephen would say, well, it's not necessary to do the four things because the four things that you're talking about have been fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I am doing those things, But I'm doing them now through the power of the Holy Spirit and not exercising my flesh because flesh gets you nowhere. But they couldn't get it. They couldn't get it. Follow the rules. Follow my rules. My rules are going to make you... um, If you follow my rules, God will be pleased with you. But if you do your own thing, Stephen, and just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ... It's impossible for God to love you.